How many rushing yards will Ken Walker in the third rack up in his NFL debut? And how many times will Daryl Taylor get after Trey Lance? We're going to be discussing and debating on our Blue Friday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks. Your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Your team every day. Greetings 12, this is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked on Seahawks. Joining me for our Blue Friday episode, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks to all the 12s out there for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. We got a jam-packed Blue Friday episode coming your way. A Seahawks legend finally getting paid his due will be entering the Ring of Honor. We're going to look back on his fantastic career out of the backfield for the Seahawks. Going to tackle some of your weekly mailbag questions and play a spirited game of over-under Seahawks 49ers themed as we head into week two. This episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online, where the game starts. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. There's so much going on in the present for the Seahawks as they gear up for a big NFC West clash with the San Francisco 49ers on Sunday. But one of the most iconic players in franchise history is finally going to be paid the respect that he deserves on October 16th. Sean Alexander will become the 16th member of the Seahawks Ring of Honor and Rob, I'm on the record. You've been on the record as well, but maybe I'm the biggest advocate for it out there. Maybe it's my running back background, but I've been wondering for the past decade why Sean Alexander was not in the ring of honor when you consider he's the only MVP in team history, and he put together one of the best five-year runs of any running back in the league's entire existence. Hasn't gotten a sniff in the Hall of Fame, really. Finally is going to have number 37 going up in the rafters long overdue from one of the best players in franchise history. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you. I mean, it, it's crazy when you look at it. I mean, his Sean Alexander's last season in the NFL was with Washington. His last season in Seattle was uh, in 2007. So to think about it, that's been 15 years since the great number 37. Alexander the Great is one of the many nicknames that he acquired for himself based on his brilliant NFL and, of course, uh, college career at Alabama as well. Uh, you know, it, it, it is. It's, it's long overdue. I mean, we are talking about, I think, a, a Hall of Fame caliber player. Um, and, and so considering, as you just mentioned, that he is the only NFL MVP in Seahawks history, of course, Seattle went to their very first Super Bowl, largely behind the spectacular running of Sean Alexander as well. I think that this is, uh, you know, something that needs to happen. And frankly, more people than just the Seahawks should be paying attention to Sean Alexander, perhaps considering him for some even loftier, uh, you know, career accomplishments like, again, a spot in Canton. Yeah, that's something that has bothered me for a long time because you and I both saw Sean Alexander playing in his prime. And yes, his career was one of those that was too short. Once that candle stopped flickering, he just kind of hit a wall. There wasn't a steady decline. He went from being league MVP to having injuries and just kind of crash dummy, bam, hitting the wall, career's over with. He just wasn't the same player after that point. And so 
I think a lot of fans unfairly hold that against him. We have to remember that this is a position that has the shortest shelf life in the NFL. But those five years that Sean Alexander was at the peak of his career are as good as any running back in NFL history. In fact, Rob, he's the only player to have five straight years with over 1,100 rushing yards and at least 14 rushing touchdowns. No other player did that five consecutive seasons. Only two players did that five seasons in their entire career. Interestingly, the other one was LaDainian Tomlinson, who broke Sean Alexander's record for the most rushing touchdowns in a single season. Alexander had 27 of them in 2005. The very next year, LaDainian Tomlinson broke that record and made his own. So those two, it was kind of like McGuire going against Sosa in baseball in the late 90s, early 2000s. Those two running backs, you were flipping the TV. You wanted to see what Tomlinson was doing and what Alexander was doing. And yeah, it was a shorter career track than some of the elite running backs in NFL history, but He's the only guy other than Adrian Peterson in the top 10 for rushing touchdowns and not in the Hall of Fame. I think you and I would agree Adrian Peterson is going to get in once he's finally eligible. But Sean Alexander not being in, it's just those couple stats that just hit there. I just don't understand why he hasn't at least been a finalist since he got out of the league back after the 2008 season. Yeah, I, I, there's nothing I can say statistically that is as powerful as the numbers that you just said, but I will at least try. Sean Alexander started 96 games in his NFL career, and he scored 100 rushing touchdowns. As you mentioned, in that 2005 season where he won NFL MVP, he scored 27 touchdowns on the ground. I mean, that's that's unbelievable. He scored another one as a receiver for 28 touchdowns. I mean, again, that was a 16-game season. I mean, I, I almost wonder if he had played in this era, and I know we're only talking about you know 15 years ago, so to say different eras, but in the fantasy football era that we are now, I think that maybe he would be a Hall of Famer based on that one year. I mean, that's just the way that fantasy football has kind of, you know, taken over a little bit and, and gambling and things like that. I've just kind of taken over the, the whole sports world in some respects. And, and so I think that there would be a lot more people from a national perspective who would be turning their attention to the Pacific Northwest if they did have a running back put up those types of numbers. And to kind of go back to your point here about the short shelf life of running backs, of course, you know, we, we just saw Chris Carson's brilliant NFL career get stopped just as abruptly. Uh, you know, and so I think that maybe there might be a little bit more respect from hopefully Seahawk fans out there that, uh, you know, a brilliant NFL career at the running back position, um, you know, should be appreciated for not necessarily just the length of it, because I think that Frank Gore is another back that should be in the NFL Hall of Fame. And he never put up anything close to the numbers that Sean Alexander or Adrian Peterson, LaDainian Tomlinson, or any of those other backs up there. But at the same time, in terms of just a dominant force when he was on the field for the Seahawks, and some of those Seahawks teams weren't very good, Sean Alexander was clearly the superstar. And so again, I think that he has been unjustly uh, basically kind of relegated to the uh, backstory for far too long. Yeah, it's a player that I've mentioned this a few times in our podcast in the past. We've talked about how it's a travesty that he hasn't gotten a sniff for the Hall of Fame, but we've talked about it. It seems like a lot of Seahawks fans, they credited so much of his success to the offensive line in front of him. And obviously when you have two Hall of Famers and Walter Jones and Steve Hutchinson in front of you, that is going to make it much easier. But I think that's discounting the Hall of Fame talent that Sean Alexander was and his ability to just 
he he never looked like he was running that fast, but he, he just he was a glider, and it was beautiful to watch the way. And his ball carrier vision was as good as any running back I've ever seen. Seeing creases before they even developed, and his patience sometimes that got him in trouble late in his career, but it was just beautiful to watch. He was an artist with the football in his hands, and we asked our listeners on social media to kick out some of their favorite memories. Almost all the ones that we received were the 88 yard touchdown against the Arizona Cardinals during his MVP season. It's fitting. He's going to get inducted to the ring of honor with the Arizona Cardinals coming to Lumen field, because that is a team that he terrorized throughout his entire NFL career. Even later years after the MVP, he had some pretty good games against the Arizona Cardinals always seemed to play at his best against the division rival. My memory among many others though, how can you not look back at Sean, at Sean Alexander's career and not remember the five touchdown in a half performance in 2002 against the Minnesota Vikings? I don't know that I've ever seen a game have an avalanche of points like that. It was a close game, and then the second quarter happened, and suddenly it's 45-10. to 10. Alexander had four rushing touchdowns and a long receiving touchdown on a screen. Five touchdowns in one half that would have made him a fantasy football hall of famer just that one half alone it was one of the most dominant single player performances regardless of position that i have ever seen and that's the kind of dominant playmaker that we're talking about in sean alexander yeah no question about it uh you know it's funny that you mentioned that particular performance against the minnesota vikings i I, i've been you know competing in fantasy football against friends and family members for a long time and I, I hate to even admit this publicly, but my cousin is probably the best fantasy football player, both because he's very intelligent and knows football, but also is just very, very lucky. Uh, but at the same time, I had Sean Alexander playing in that game, and we were actually deer hunting in eastern Washington. And so we were listening to the game, uh, and it was sketchy ready. You couldn't very hear it very well. And I just kept hearing Sean Alexander, touchdown. And I kept thinking, there's no way he has scored this many touchdowns. They must be doing a replay of a previous uh, scoring drive. Uh, but I'll be darned if he had, just as you said, he had the four rushing touchdowns and also caught that fifth one on that screen pass. I think it went for like 90 yards or something obscene. I mean, you know, it was just incredible. It was probably the most, single most dominant. I guarantee you it's the single most dominant fantasy football player performance I've ever had of a player on my team. And I think that might just be the most dominant fantasy football performance we probably have ever seen so again it, it just it, it kind of speaks to how great of a player that he was and then again i don't i don't want to just focus in on one or two games as you said that five-year run is it's unprecedented hasn't been matched since and, and considering just how good the running backs in the nfl have been going all the way back i mean there's backs out there who struggled with durability and yet found themselves in Canton, a la Gale Sayers and players like that. So to me, again, it, it, I always wonder if Sean Alexander has played his NFL career in Dallas, in San Francisco, in New York, certainly, then he would be in the Hall of Fame right now. But the, because he played in Seattle, you know, little old sleepy Seattle that nobody – uh, you know, outside of the West Coast really pays much attention to until we're competing for a championship, then I think that Sean Alexander not only would be already in the Hall of Fame, he probably would have been a first ballot guy. That's the crazy thing. I thought when he retired that he was going to have a better chance of being first ballot or second year selection than the situation we're in now where he's almost in no man's territory where he might not even be a nominee down the line. It's just crazy to me we've reached that point. One of the greatest running backs 
that's ever played the game. At least those five years, they stack up against anybody. If Terrell Davis is in the hall and some of the other running backs that had shorter careers, then Sean Alexander should absolutely be enshrined. Well, the rest of the nation, it might take them a little bit more time to catch up and get Sean Alexander in the hall where he belongs. At least the Seahawks now are finally going to pay their respects and get number 37 in the Raptors. Again, that's coming up October 16th when the Cardinals come to town. Alexander the Great will become the 16th member of the Ring of Honor. Really looking forward to one of the all-time greats in franchise history, finally getting the recognition that he deserves. Up next, we're going to tackle your mailbag questions. Tons of questions from our listeners, the 12s out there. Going to answer as many of those as we can. Coming up next here on our Blue Friday edition of Locked On Seahawks. Turo is the world's largest car sharing marketplace. With Turo, you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Browse a huge selection of vehicles for just about any occasion or budget across the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Book a spacious SUV or a minivan for a family road trip. Get a classic or luxury car for a special event, birthday, or holiday. Find affordable economy cars if you're on a budget and just need to get from A to B. Test drive that new electric vehicle you've had your eye on to see how it fits in your everyday life. Many Turo hosts can even deliver the car right to you. Every trip is backed by liability insurance. Terms and conditions apply. Ditch boring rental cars and find your drive at Turo.com. You're listening to the Blue Friday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbett Smith. Joining me for today's show, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks to all the 12s, as always, for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. As we've been doing the last couple weeks, Friday is now going to be mailbag day, and we've got a lot of really good questions from the 12s we're excited to answer. So, Rob, you get the honors of the first question on today's mailbag. This one was explicitly written to you. And this is coming from Pete's Air Monarch. So Pete's Jews now are asking us questions on Twitter. With Jamal Adams out for the season, who do you see stepping up on the field? What about in the locker room and sideline trying to pl- replace the energy and hype that Adams brings? Wow, that's a terrific question. Thank you so much for asking it. I have not often been asked by tennis shoes uh, questions. So uh, I, I think that first off, just the energy, that is going to be difficult. There, there's no question about it. I mean, some of the players that I've seen really uh, be have that enthusiasm um, that I think uh, that, that Jamal Adams brings, that, that tough guy. I think just enthusiasm, Daryl Taylor is one of the guys I have to mention. I mean, just the way that he kind of gets his, his teammates kind of jacked up. Uchenna Nuosu, in terms of that junkyard dog mentality, Shelby Harris being another one uh, that certainly brings that. Uh, and then just in terms of playmaking ability, in terms of kind of a guy who is just, I think, gets a lot of respect in the locker room, but quietly, that quiet respect. I think you've got to say his tandem uh, or his teammate there in the backfield uh, in, in Quandre Diggs. I think that when you have the Pro Bowls uh, that Quandre Diggs has, um, the sustained success um, as a ball hawk that he has, then I think that that is going to be the kind of the guy. And that's going to kind of lead me into the the whole safety conversation. Of course, the, the primary replacement is a starting strong safety is going to be Josh Jones. Um, Ryan Neal, of course, is still on this team and his uh, versatility his starting experience for Seattle, I think, is just going to be that much more critical. Now, uh, we, of course, talked about Joey Blunt. He made this club. It doesn't sound like he is likely to be available to uh, play against the 49ers. P. Carroll talked about that during uh, Friday's post-game pre- or post-practice press conference. Um, and there's not currently any safeties on Seattle's practice squad. So that might be a position that the club feels like they might need to go outside of the franchise 
analyze it and look around a little bit. But at this point, that's the way I see their safety and leadership rotation going. They do have Tease Tabor, who they just got from the Falcons practice squad, and he was a former second-round pick that has played for Sean Desai. So they do have an extra safety now on the roster. He's also played some corner as well. So interesting dynamics there at that position, no doubt about it. Ryan Walro tweets, how much more confidence should it give Pete Carroll and Clint Hurt knowing that Jordan Brooks adjusted the play call when crowd noise was too loud, which led to the big stop by Cody Barton? Looks like he could be on his way to his first All-Pro season. So I kind of have a mixed bag reaction to that revelation from Jordan Brooks that was on Thursday admitting that he did not hear the actual correct play call because how loud it was. It was supposed to be a blitz. If you saw the screen that the Broncos had dialed up, if Cody Barton is blitzing there, Javante Williams probably still running and is almost to Denver. Would have been a totally different finish to that game. So it ended up being a blessing in disguise. The 12s literally won this game by eliminating that play call and then Jordan Brooks having to do what he did and calling his own play out there. And here's the thing, Rob. I think this happens a lot in the NFL, particularly when you play in an environment like Lumen Field. As loud as it gets there, defensive players, yeah, it's a benefit when you're rushing the passer. But, like, if you're Jordan Brooks or Bobby Wagner all those years, good luck hearing what the defensive coordinator has to give you for a play call. So you've got to be on your heels and ready to make those calls. And that's why you put that faith in a player like Jordan Brooks. So I think they absolutely have confidence in him. And he showed there that he made the right call. Luckily, they didn't send an extra blitzer and set things up more nicely for the Broncos because we'd probably be having a much different discussion right now. Like he said, we'd be in misery right now if they would have made that play call. But they're certainly confident in him. I don't know how much stock I'd put into it necessarily just because I do think this happens a fair amount. happens with quarterbacks too where they don't hear things in the headset. That happens a lot with Russell Wilson over the years with the Seahawks as well. Next question here for Rob. Michael Hendrickson tweets, why did the Seahawks disappear offensively in the second half of Monday night's game? It seems like the Broncos made some defensive adjustments and we didn't effectively counter. Well, I think the biggest thing is, as uh, as Michael just uh, basically answered the question himself, I think that that Denver certainly made some adjustments. Um, I think that that Seattle very much from the outset wanted to target the tight ends. Geno Smith said as much in his post-game press conference. We predicted that would be the case, just knowing how talented Seattle's tight end group was and some of the limitations of Denver's linebackers. And so I think that, that Denver basically adjusted. We saw some more one-on-one coverage, uh, you know, to those those tight ends and, and uh you know and kind of pinching that the runs i think there were some phantom calls the the abraham lucas hold uh you know obviously ruined a drive there the uh you know you saw a little bit more pressure um you know that there was a couple of sacks there that happened in, in the second half you saw the dk metcalf uh catch and then fumble there were some promising drives uh and, and i think frankly that, that seattle's two touchdowns to those those, those tight ends disley and parkinson were not fluky, but at the same time were plays that were obviously big time plays. Seattle did not have a lot of explosive plays in that game other than those touchdowns. They had to kind of work their way down the field. And when you're playing against the caliber of a defense like Denver, that's going to be very difficult to do. So I thought that Seattle had the ball bounce their way on several different drives, certainly defensively. We know about the ball being punched out a couple of times at the goal line, but I also think that Seattle had the ball bounce their way, so to speak, 
offensively in the first half and that defensively Denver just tightened things up a little bit. And I think the Seattle played a little bit closer to the best because they did have that lead and didn't want to have some type of critical mistake allow Denver easy score on the backside. Next question here coming from Cash with the K tweets too early to really think about it now, but do we possibly start scouting for an early round safety in next year's draft since Jamal is possibly not going to be the same and is injury prone going forward? I think that's a really interesting question. It depends how Jamal Adams recovers from this injury. This quad injury is one that is worrisome because this can be a year long recovery depending on the severity of the injury. Pete Carroll did not disclose after Friday's practice how significant the injury was in terms of timetable. Because if this is a partially torn quad tendon, depending on how severe it is, sometimes players can get back in four months. That would be the minimum as far as recovery timeline. If Seattle somehow makes the playoffs, it would not be out of the question in that situation that maybe Jamal Adams could play in January. I'm not going to sit here and predict that because I don't think that's what's going to happen. But if he has a ruptured quad tendon, we haven't heard Pete Carroll use that word at all. But if it was ruptured, that could be something that leaves him out for 11 or 12 months before he's truly all the way back. And so I think the severity of the injury has to be weighed in. But given the fact that he's had season-ending injuries each of the last two seasons, he's had some other issues. His first year in Seattle, he's clearly had durability issues. I do think that strong safety might be a position in next year's draft that Seattle looks at much more closely than they have the last couple of years because they're clearly going to have to start looking that direction. They're hoping Adams can stay healthy and return next year. He's only 26 going on 27, but you have the concerns with the wear and tear with the finger injuries, two torn labrums, and now this injury to his knee. That is not a good track record. So I do think that is a position they're going to have to start taking seriously from a scouting standpoint and looking, you know, maybe we start looking for our future, that strong safety position, because he's not proving that he can be available enough to be that guy right now. Zero Blade Chronicle tweets, is Geno Smith's success sustainable? Will we see a bit more deep shots in week two? Rob, take it away. I've talked a lot about Geno Smith. Let's get your thoughts on the sustainability after that game a week ago. Well, I, I think in the one regard, it is not sustainable. Geno Smith is not going to start, what, 17 of 18 in the first half very many times. I mean, no one ever has. Uh, you know, So that part is not sustainable. Do I think that he is going to be much more reliable in terms of scoring touchdowns and not putting the ball in harm's way? Yes, I think that is sustainable. That is what he has shown over his career. That's why Pete Carroll and, and yourself, Corb, I mean, kind of, you know, you, you nailed it. You said that you thought that he was the favorite going the, throughout the entire training camp. I thought that Seattle might consider who I still believe to have the higher upside, but no question also has the higher downside in terms of just how much more willing he is to throw the ball into coverage with, with Drew Locke. So I do think that Geno Smith can continue to have relatively uh, you know, average statistical success but that doesn't necessarily translate into wins. You, you see some of these quarterbacks throw a whole bunch of touchdowns and yet they lose the game. That is not what Pete Carroll is all about. So I, I don't think that Geno Smith is going to have a Pro Bowl caliber season. I don't think that the Seahawks need him to have a Pro Bowl caliber season for them to be competing for the divisional title. At the same time, the second half of that question, will we see more deep shots in week two? I think that's what Seattle is going to want to do. I think they absolutely are going to target 
their receivers, especially DK Metcalf, a little bit more in week two. But the deep shots, I think, is incumbent on Seattle's offensive line to be able to protect Geno Smith long enough to allow him to take those deep shots. And that I am not yet willing to guarantee, considering the opponent and location that Seattle is going to be playing this next weekend. We got one last question here, Rob. You and I are both going to get a chance to answer this because I think this is a really good question considering what we've seen here. This one coming from Chris Dunn. If the Seahawks win on Sunday and look fairly good in doing so, does that change your opinion on how this season can play out? 4-0 wouldn't look impossible with the Saints and Cards in games 5-6. and six. Depending on what happens on Sunday, 4-2, and 5-1, and one, or even 6-0, suddenly doesn't seem impossible for a start. That is an excellent question, Chris, because one of my big observations this first week, we thought the NFC was going to be down, but I think it looks even more down than I anticipated. I see nothing but mediocrity in this conference, and Seattle's going to be playing a lot of NFC foes coming up. Now, the 49ers clearly have talent. This is going to be a tough road game, but then you've got Atlanta, a team that, they looked better than I expected last week, but they still folded late in the game. They're going to have a tough time winning many games with the lack of talent that they have. Detroit in week four, I think Detroit is pesky, but it's still Detroit. They have to prove they can consistently win games, which has been a struggle for three decades for them. So until they've proven they can do that, then that should be a game the Seahawks feel they can win. The Saints, you don't know what you're going to get with James Winston. And then the Cardinals game, they look terrible in week one. They've got injuries. They've got DeAndre Hopkins on suspension. So I am not going to sit here and say they're going to go 6-0 in that stretch. There's going to be losses in there. But, Rob, I, I think 4-2, and two, if Seattle gets out of this game in Santa Clara with a win and moves to 2-0, and oh, I think getting four wins in the first six, and if everything really falls in line five, I don't think it's out of the question. But Seahawks fans should probably be happy with 3-3, three and 4-2 three, and two range out of there. If they can do that, given the state of the NFC, uh, then maybe this team can hang around in the playoff race better than we anticipated. Well, I will just say this. I, I think, you know, before the season began, uh, you know, I was asked to kind of give our predictions on the season. And I thought that Seattle would beat Denver in week one. And I yeah. still thought that Seattle would finish the season six and 11. Now, if they beat the 49ers, then yes, I will be adjusting things because then that not only means that the Seahawks are better than I thought, that means that the 49ers are worse than I thought. And I would agree with you. I was not very impressed by the LA Rams or the Arizona Cardinals, but again, this is week, week one, one that we're, we're talking about here. And I do have some concerns about how Seattle will match up against Atlanta and Detroit. And I certainly have concerns about how Seattle is going to match up against San Francisco again in Santa Clara and certainly the new Orleans saints as well. I think those are two very physical football teams. I think the emotion was so high in Lumen field that that's one of the reasons why the Seahawks won. I think the 12s should give the pat themselves on the back uh, or the back of the wings, I guess, whatever you want to say, because I think that they really helped this team win. And without that, the emotional roller coaster that is the NFL season, I think if they lose this 49ers game, then I think that you could see the exact opposite kind of thing happen here. And you could see this team start to struggle a little bit. But again, going back to Chris Dunn's very optimistic Pete Carroll, Pete's Air Monarchs type of question here, uh, I think if they do win, then yes, it would be time for not only us, but for everybody else around the league to start paying attention to what Pete Carroll is doing with this Seahawks team. We will have a much better idea where things stand in week two because week one is just so random. And we've seen teams that ended up not being very good that won in the season opener. And then 
once there was film, teams were able to counter and then they beat up on him. Fans hoping in Seattle that's not the case with these Seahawks. We're going to find out a lot in this game coming up on Sunday against the 49ers, who are going to be pretty desperate for a win after losing in Chicago, a game they weren't expected to lose a week ago. We're going to have a little bit of fun here, some Friday game day action coming up here next. We're going to play over or under with some Seahawks 49ers-related topics. We'll get to that here in a moment. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all your pro and college football betting needs and sports info this season. Find all the latest football league developments, game matchups, news, and podcasts, including Week 2 action in the NFL and college ranks. BetOnline is also your continued source for all your sporting wagering information, whether it's live betting, esports, and scores. It's the fastest and easiest way to check in on all your favorite sports and events, including baseball, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to their website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. Bet online, where the game starts. You're listening to the Blue Friday edition of Locked On Seahawks. I'm Corbin Smith. Joining me for today's show, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks to all the 12s out there for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. And make sure for your second listen to check out the Peacock and Williamson NFL show. Brian Peacock and former NFL scout Matt Williamson give you the expert NFL analysis in less than 30 minutes. It's free and available wherever you get podcasts. Blue Friday's typically game day, and we're not going to change up traditions today. Rob and I are going to now be doing a little bit of over-under action. We're going to have a number of statements pertaining to Sunday's game in Santa Clara, Seahawks 49ers-related topics, looking at statistics, and we have to decide over-under. And now we're switching it up this time. In the past, we've done you know two touchdowns, and then you could you could push theoretically. You could say, well, I think the player's going to throw two touchdowns. Push has been eliminated today. We're going to take it a little bit more from a betting angle, and we're looking at .5s mixed in there. So you have to take over or under. No pushes, Rob, so no cheating for either one of us. First one that we've got here, Geno Smith, we just had a lengthy discussion about the sustainability of his success going into this game. Over or under, Rob, Geno Smith, two and a half touchdown passes against the 49ers. Uh, I got to go the under on that. And it's not that I have that much concern necessarily about the San Francisco cornerback situation, although I do believe that the free agent addition of Javarius Ward is a significant one for the 49ers. Yep. But you hit on the the desperation uh, as well as that pass rush. That is formidable. I think if Seattle is able to win this game, it's not only going to be Geno Smith possibly throwing two touchdowns, but I think it's going to be the running game. If he were to throw three or more touchdowns, you mentioned this is a betting thing then I think you got to jump in on the Seahawks. I think fantasy football people need to jump in on Geno Smith because clearly I, among many others, uh, have uh, basically disrespected the Seahawks to this point, if that were indeed to be the case. I'm going to go under two. And I think that two touchdowns, just like last week, is probably the sweet spot. I don't see him going over that because I think that this is going to be another fairly low-scoring game. The 49ers have a pretty darn good defense. I have questions for them on offense, especially if George Kittle can't play. He did practice limited on Friday, so maybe he plays on Sunday. We still don't know. But there are question marks for both these teams on offense, as well as Geno played last week. That's not a knock on him. I just don't know that he's necessarily going to throw a lot of touchdowns in this game. I could see a few more big plays downfield, but I think this is a game maybe that the run game, Rashad Penny and company, they're the ones finding the end zone rather than a bunch of passing touchdowns from Geno Smith. So I'm going to go under as well on this one. Now going to defense, Daryl Taylor against the 49ers offensive line. 
over under Rob one and a half sacks against the 49ers on Sunday. Oh, so you're saying I can cheat on this one because I think that that's about the, the number uh, that I'm you expecting. You could theoretically push on this one. Yeah, I, I should have made one and like a half. Six, five or something. <laughs> <laughs> it is one and a, I think that there's a real chance that Daryl Taylor's going to get those one and a half sacks. Uh, you know, Trent Williams at the left tackle position is absolutely a dominant force. Mike McGlinchey at the right tackle position is a very good player, but at the same time, you have a very inexperienced quarterback, of course, in Trey Lance. You know that San Francisco is going to run their quarterback so if i don't know that they're necessarily going to be those traditional sacks i think there could be a lot of tackles right near the line of scrimmage so it might be one and a half sacks but they might be one and a half sacks that only gain you five yards or you could have a monster loss because again you have an inexperienced quarterback so i i'm gonna go with the over on this one which is very bold because of course daryl taylor basically got blanked in week one and i think that's part of the reason why? Just like that, the 49ers are desperate. I think that Daryl Taylor needs to play with a little bit more desperation as well. I would say this, though, again, coming back to the Geno Smith thing, I'm not so concerned about individual statistics. I think if Daryl Taylor just pins his ears back and all he cares about is trying to get quarterback sacks, he's very likely to leave the gate open in the rushing yards that were there for the Denver Broncos. There certainly would be there if Daryl Taylor and the rest of Seattle's defense has not pinched the line of scrimmage and really play good quarterback quality defense san francisco is going to look to run the ball and seattle has shown that they have not been incapable yet of really stopping the run at least not sustainably only in punching the ball out when it matters most of course i'm going to go under on this one and it's not because i don't like the matchup i do think daryl taylor could have success against mike mcglinchey i've been talking all offseason training him preseason about my expectations for taylor but you just hit the hammer on the nail there. I have my concerns about him putting all of his eggs into the pass rushing basket right now. This is a 49ers team that, especially with Trey Lance's running ability, I don't know they're going to throw the ball very much in this game. And so that's just going to limit your opportunities by default to get to Trey Lance and get sacks. He's going to have to man up as a run defender. 49ers saw the tape that we did. They were, the Broncos were really going right after him off the edge. And Pete Carroll pointed out middle of this week, we have to be more consistent and better setting the edge. A lot of that falls on Daryl Taylor. And so I don't know that he is going to be able to get the opportunities to get more than one and a half sacks. I think he will get one in this game. I will say that. I think he gets one, but I'm not going to go over on one and a half because I just don't think there's going to be enough opportunities there. And he's really going to have to focus on defending the run and improving in that regard. Going back to offense now, over or under Rob combined sacks three and a half allowed by Charles Cross and Abe Lucas. This is a very formidable 49ers defense with a number of quality pass rushers. Three and a half sacks between the two of them. Over or under? I'm going to go under. Uh, but for the same reason, actually, as what you just said there with Daryl Taylor, I don't know how many opportunities that the 49ers are going to get to sack Geno Smith because I think that Seattle is going to try to run the ball a lot. And then, frankly, and Seahawks fans may not like this either, I, I think that San Francisco's defensive tackles are good enough that, you know, those outside pass rushers may push Geno Smith, who did a terrific job of stepping up into the pocket. But again, with San Francisco's defensive tackles, with their linebackers as well, likely to be near the line of scrimmage, I think they're going to be crashing down. I do think that the 49ers are going to have a lot of success in rushing the quarterback. I just don't know that it's going to be the Seattle's rookies are going to be the only ones struggling. And three and a half sacks feels a little bit too rich for me. So I'm taking the under on this one. 
I'm going to cheat. I'm pushing on this one because, as you mentioned earlier, you can't have partial sacks allowed. And so I'm going to go with exactly three and a half. I've been so impressed by Abe Lucas. I think Cross, most of his tape on Monday night against Denver was good. He had some obvious losses to Bradley Chubb in the second half, though. Nick Bosa is going to cause problems. I think Samson Ebukam is also going to be a problem at times for Abe Lucas. And then they move Nick Bosa around. He is not a defensive end that plays on one side. He plays on both sides of the line. So both these rooks are going to get tested by him in this game. So I think three and a half is right dead on. And our listeners might say three and a half sacks uh, with the tackles, that means bad news bears. But that's another production that these guys are typically going to get. I don't think that automatically means that you're going to lose the game. But again, I think this is going to be a very defensive contest. I think Seattle's going to run the ball quite a bit, as you mentioned. Still, I think there's going to be enough opportunities to get to Geno Smith for the edge rush, particularly Nick Bosa, that I feel like three and a half is actually a pretty even number for the 49ers to be able to get against those two rookie tackles in this game. Now we're going to move away from the offense and defense here for just a second. Over under Rob, timeouts lost by missed challenges. Will it be over under 0.5 for Pete Carroll in Levi Stadium? Oh, my goodness. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think you have to go over. I mean, my goodness, it just seems like almost every game that there is a challenge that it almost feels like sometimes Seattle uses these challenges almost as, as a timeout. Uh, you know, just because the, it, it, I, I watch some of the, the the replays that Seattle challenges, and I think there's no chance you're going to win this. Uh, and, and yet it seems like Seattle continues to make those decisions game after game after game. Uh, again, considering where you're playing, how physical we expect this game to be, the fact that I do expect a turnover here or there could absolutely play a critical role in how mo important momentum is to clubs like Seattle. Uh, I, I think that this is one that I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's over and perhaps significantly over. Yeah, I'm going to go over on this one, too. It's not quite to the level of State Farm Stadium as far as being a house of horrors when it comes to injuries and fluky plays, but it does feel like there's always something fluky that happens when these two teams play at Levi Stadium. We saw that crazy Monday night game a few years back. There's been some day games that have had weird stuff happen. It just feels like it happens annually, and a lot of times that leads to challenges. And Pete Carroll, it does seem like there are ones where it's like, you know what? I might have a good chance of losing this, but I'm going to take my chance anyway. Maybe they'll see something that they overturned that we weren't expecting, and I get this timeout. And there's been a few times like that has worked out in their favor, but more times than not, it has not. So I'm going to go over as well. Going back to defense here, pass breakups over under Rob. Tariq Woolen and Mike Jackson, this is assuming Mike Jackson starts again. I think he played well enough to earn a second start. Two and a half pass breakups by Woolen and Mike Jackson. Are you going over or under? against the 49ers? Uh, it does seem like a lot to think that Seattle, these two players in particular, would get uh, you know at least three pass breakups. That said, I think that anytime you have a rookie cornerback out there, as well as some would call Mike Jackson at this point in his career a journeyman, that you're going to have to attack. Uh, you know, and you got a guy like Debo Samuel, you got a guy like Brandon Ayuk. The, the 49ers have weapons. Um I'm going to go the over on this. It's only because I think that, A, Tariq Wool is just that damn good. 
Uh, B, I think that Trey Lance is a good quarterback and likely to be a quarterback who's going to be feeling a little bit of pressure. He's going to have to try and make some aggressive throws. And then C, Debo Samuel, as terrific as he is, he's not the most elite route runner. His game is kind of physicality. And so I think that it allows the, the corners to be able to get up in his grill a little bit more, might be able to create some pass breakups. So again, this is a fairly bold statement by, by saying, I think that they, these two players are going to combine to get three pass breakups. But I do think that there's a good chance based on the opponent. I'm going to go under. I'm going to go right at two on this one. I could see one apiece. I could see one or the other getting two. I just don't know necessarily. This kind of goes back to the idea that the 49ers have to throw a fair amount for this to happen. Yep. And if they do, if if the Seahawks stuff the run and then Trey Lance is forced to beat him with his arm, then absolutely the opportunity is going to be there. I just don't know that this game is going to play out that way. I think it's going to be a slugfest like we've seen many times when these teams get together. Lack of opportunities means just not enough chances to get your hands on the football. Doesn't mean that they're playing poor coverage, but pass breakups, they don't happen a ton typically in the NFL. So I'm going to go with the under on this one, and I'm going to go two. We got one last one real quick here. He's going to be making his NFL debut. Won't be starting, but we get to see Ken Walker III for the first time in a Seahawks uniform. Over or under, Rob, Ken Walker III, 50 and a half rushing yards in his NFL debut in Santa Clara. Well, you know, again, I, I think that's going to come down to, to opportunities, as you just mentioned with, with many of the other statistics here. And I think that Seattle wants to give Rashad Penny the ball the bulk of the time. I think that they trust him. Uh, you know, Ken Walker, I'm excited about what he can do. And there is no question he and Rashad Penny can break off a 50-yarder, kind of like we were talking about Sean Alexander before, you know, with, with one snap. At the same time, I just have that much respect for the 49ers front, especially. I think it's going to be hard sledding for the Seahawks running game to really get going very effectively. So I am going to take the under in this game. Although, again, I am very high on Ken Walker III's uh, upside, especially in this offense. I'm going to go under, but that doesn't mean that I don't think he's going to have an impact. I just don't know there's going to be enough opportunities. It's his first game coming back from a hernia procedure, so they're not going to just throw him in, oh, 20 carries for you, kind of walk in the third. Exactly. There's not going to be enough opportunities with – now, if Rashad Penny gets banged up, that obviously changes things, but we have to go with the assumption that Rashad Penny is going to be the bell cow in this game, as Seattle wants him to be. I could see Ken Walker the third getting 40 to 45 rushing yards on – eight, nine carries, 10 carries, which would be a fine game. I just don't see him getting enough touches, and I don't see him ripping off that long run against this defense. I just don't see it happening. So I'm going to go under as well. But that doesn't mean he's going to play well or that he doesn't make an impact. I could see him making some nice plays in the receiving game too. He's going to get his opportunities. I just don't think he's going to get quite enough in his first game back. They're going to want to ease him back into action. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Make sure to check out Locked on Seahawks and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're also streaming video form five days a week on YouTube. Coming up this weekend, we will have a pregame show. It's either going to be coming on Sunday morning or it might even drop on Saturday morning. We're still figuring all those things out, but there will be a pregame show. Nick Lee and I will be teaming up and the two of us will be looking at keys to victory, developing a game plan, and making some key predictions for this weekend's Week 2 game between the Seahawks and 49ers. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your weekend. Get pumped up for Week 2 action. Go Hawks.